This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research and Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael. Yeah. I mean, are you one of those teachers who goes in the classroom and, you know, just teaches history, right? Doesn't just bring history. Your, doesn't bring your politics into it. You know, you're not, you're not like biased. You're not trying to change history, you know, like you're just teaching the facts. Is that the kind oh, of teacher it's you like, are? It's like, what was that TV show? Like, just the facts, ma'am. Or I think that was Dragnet. I think that was Dragnet. The Dragnet approach. I think that it's, I think it's complicated. And I feel like with the political climate we are in, it's even more complicated. But I do think that, you know, with the, what you're, like, what you're talking about, what you're discussing, I think that is kind of like you bringing yourself into the class, like mm-hmm. what content you're choosing to, to, to go over. I think the objectivity, like if you're, I think it's important to kind of get beyond like why people think the way they do. And so bringing your own stuff into it, I think is okay. Like, as long as you're like being kind of transparent and like, you're not, you're showing, like you're demonstrating that this is where, this is why you think that way, I guess. (laughs) So, so it's just important to tell them everything about what you think. Ah, I don't know. I don't know. This is tough. And you might guess I'm being a little sarcastic, even with my questioning, but I do recognize that it, it's hard. Teachers are sometimes it's, it's hard to figure out, you know, how to approach social studies in a climate where probably, you know, you have a lot of pressure from parents and other things, but then it's also like, how can you not insert yourself into it isn't it happening anyway right isn't the textbook and the curriculum you're getting already oh sure and what you're already an established perspective yeah are you talking about slavery are you talking about like you know ways that enslaved you know people were 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 working or like you're talking about their lives or are you just kind of glossing over it you're saying well first time we mentioned slavery is is we talk about the gag rule when they stop talking about like i don't know it's one of those things dan yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, and I've been out of the classroom for, you know, the high school classroom for 10 years. So I don't envy it. I, I always felt somehow that I had the ability to teach the way I wanted and to teach, you know, critical histories that center perspectives of, you know, minoritized groups that sometimes aren't centered in the curriculum historically, right. In the past and the present and now have become targeted oftentimes, right. You see like the 1619 project being not just discouraged or, or, you know, criticized in the news, but like States literally banning it, which is a step that's very, very far along the fascist kind of uh, yeah spectrum, you know, to start censoring uh, historical perspectives. So just like we, we are in my department, like we are doing stuff to like bring other narratives to the forefront and to kind of like share the space because like our history curriculum is very much, you know, like white, it's very much white centric or it has been historically. And so we have been trying to, or working towards like, you know, making it more, 
uh, inclusive, just sharing, yeah, just sharing the space. And if that's bringing your bias into it, then sure, sure. I think I, I definitely bring my bias, my bias into it, but I just don't think that that's, I don't know if that's bias or if that's just teaching. That's good teaching. Right. It's, yeah. I mean, it's all history, right? We're talking about here. And so we've been trying to figure stuff like this out, but the way that we do a better job is by bringing people in who's been thinking deeply about this and can help us think through these issues, right? About how we can think about what it means to teach subjects like history and maybe to think about what it should look like. And so we would like to welcome into the podcast, friend of the pod, returning Maribel Santiago. And you know what? I'm going to be optimistic here and say future friend of the pod because we know we know he's coming back. Tadashi Dezona, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Michael, for having us. I'm going to go ahead and speak for Tadashi and say that we're both very excited to be here. <laughs> we're excited you're here. We are. And we can start by, can you all tell us each a little bit more about your backgrounds in education? Sure. So I am a former social studies teacher, high school social studies teacher. I taught in Los Angeles for a few years before starting grad school. And and that kind of was a switching point for me from being an educator to then being a teacher of educators um, where I began preparing pre-service teachers. And I've been doing that for the past seven years or so. And so I've, uh, it's a, a new role and a different role, and I'm happy to do it. And it's given me the space to be able to ask some of the questions that you're talking about and, and, and have these conversations with teachers. And I do want to say that we do not have the answers to these questions. We have wonderings <laughs> as well. From this standpoint, when you're, when you're a researcher, it gives you the opportunity to be reflective in the way that teachers can't always be because they're just super busy. And the reality is that now teaching during COVID has made it even more challenging for teachers. So I feel very fortunate to be in this position to work with teachers and and kind of check in on them and encourage them to continue doing the good work that they've been doing. And of course, if you remember from the first episode, Dr. Santiago has been advocating for, you know, a more inclusive curriculum that centered, right, your own experiences, right? Isn't that what you told us the last time you were on in high school? You you weren't seeing it and you advocated for it and like you made it happen and you're continuing to make it happen as a uh, working yeah. in higher ed. So, yeah, I had totally actually forgotten about that until you mentioned it. <laughs> it feels it like a very three good podcast. You should listen. <laughs> it's, a, it's like three lifetimes ago, right? <laughs> that was a whole adult ago because uh, that's how old I am now. But yeah, I was as a student really did not see my history reflected in schools. Uh, a lot of it I learned outside of school through my parents or my sibling. My parents are from Oaxaca, Mexico, so they were really good about teaching me community history. And my brother really uh, introduced me to the history of the Chicano Chicano movement, Chicanx movement, as I guess we're saying we're calling it now. And yeah, in the high school, I really pushed for us to have it as a an elective. And at least before COVID, it was still being offered at an elect as an elective at my former high school. And now I get to research how to teach Latinx histories in complex and nuanced ways. I guess I've been doing this work since I've been a child. <laughs> Would you believe it's been over five years since your last visit on this podcast? You last were on May 9th, 2017. That is blowing my brain. I cannot what? believe that's true. Isn't that... We've been doing this for five years. I think we've been doing it over six. All right, Tadashi, tell us about your background in education. Hi, thanks for having me on. My background in education, I think 
I mean, kind of linking back to what Maribel was was mentioning. I mean, I I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and which is you know overall a, a not that diverse area. And so I definitely grew up with a sort of sense of my family's history not being represented as much in the curriculum. Kind of coming from a Japanese American family, and and for me it was like learning about families' experiences of internment camps in World War II, and kind of getting that history from within a family environment, but not as much, not getting that history from school. So that's kind of like that piece of my educational background. And and then I, I taught in New York City for, for over 12 years in New York City public schools, kind of seven years pretty quick after my undergrad. Then I went to grad school to kind of study the things I was observing in schools. And then I went back to teaching in another public school in Brooklyn, New York for another six years while finishing my dissertation and, and after. And so for me, you know, I, I, I always taught in schools with pretty much all students of color. And so it was, it's always been for me trying to figure out, okay, how do I create a different learning environment than the one that I grew up in? How do I kind of create a social studies classroom where my students might might see themselves reflected in, in um, the texts and the things that we're talking about. And so one way to do that is to kind of wrestle with how we even think of history, which you all have done, and you got published about it. So that's pretty impressive. Congratulations on your publication in theory and research in social education. Woo-hoo. So the article is titled, History is critical, addressing the false dichotomy between historical inquiry and criticality. All right. Can you tell us about this paper? Yeah. So it, Tadasha and I have probably been exploring this topic individually for a few years, but I don't, I, it wasn't a conversation that we had had yet until we had gone to this conference and we were talking with colleagues and, and for some reason, People were talking about educators choosing to teach racial literacy or historical inquiry and the tension between having to teach one or the other. And we it, it was a little weird. I had one of those like um like emoji, like weird faces, you know, what you're thinking about that, like, wait, what? And it was one of those moments where it was like, wait, when did we decide as a field that racial literacy and historical inquiry were contradictory? And I, I totally understood the tension that people were talking about in, in some sense, right? Um, the reality is that the field has old paradigms still very much in place. Um, they're kind of frozen in time. We often think about historical inquiry as quote unquote apolitical, right? That it primarily focuses on developing students' historical thinking skills. Um, and as such, it has no explicit person purpose beyond just understanding history. And to be quite honest, it's kind of why and how many school districts have taken up some variation of historical thinking or historical thinking, historical inquiry in their history standards or, or um, any like district materials. And so in contrast, you know, critical historical inquiry, which is what Cynthia Salinas has written about, she talks her and um Brooke Blevins talk about using historical thinking skills to analyze power dynamics, specifically in relationship to race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and class. But this approach has kind of been labeled as quote unquote unscientific for being so clear in its purpose, right? 
so I we, we kind of understood where people were coming from when they were when they were describing teachers as having to either choose a, a, a critical lens or historical thinking. And then when we started talking about it, Tadashi and I, we kind of felt that um, this was a little bit of a, a, a poorly constructed dichotomy. And I think that there's a it, it's interesting how Maribel and I have come to work on this together because I think that there's our, our backgrounds, you know, we, we were classroom teachers and then we did graduate school and, and our programs were, were different. And my, my program's focus was social and cultural studies and, and Marty Bell's was much more explicitly focused on history education research, right? And so, so in, there's a way where in working together, we've been able to bring our, our different kind of backgrounds into conversation and in recognizing the way that there are different conversations. These are two different conversations happening in education, but there's a lot of overlaps, right? So, so part of it was trying to, to recognize even within our own conversations, a sort of false dichotomy between this idea of, of criticality camp and a camp that's more focused on uh, skills, uh, historical thinking skills based, right? So is the idea that if you are doing inquiry, right, you are just apolitical, but if you're teaching about other cultures or, you know, other narratives that are missing, that that makes it political. And so therefore you can't do both of those things, because if you're in the inquiry field, you're just apolitical. But if you're bringing other voices, that is political. Is that the the issue? So I, I think it's I appreciate the question, because I think a lot of people see as being more inclusive of bringing other perspectives, right? There's this idea of presenting multiple perspectives, right? And giving each perspective same weight. And that is actually not what we're saying. And that's actually not what critical historical inquiry is saying either, right? Because we live in a, a society, at least in the United States, that centers white European perspectives. And, and, and what we'll talk about as we discussed the paper further, right, also centers a white historical approach, and specifically in its teaching as well, right? And so it is not enough to be inclusive. We have to center historically marginalized communities and be open to other types of knowledge. And I'll let Tadashi talk a little bit about more about that, what we actually mean when history is critical and, and historical inquiry can be critical. And kind of like the the nuances of what we're trying to get at. Yeah, and you know, I think in our conversations, based in our backgrounds and areas of research that we've both done, you know, I think it, there is this kind of a, a conflict between, like, you know, as teachers, we often adapted existing materials to to make it more critical, right? And so there is a way that, as teachers, both of us kind of naturally did that process of kind of thinking about, okay, what are what are the skills that our students need and, and how do we cover the content and then adapting those things to to meet our students' needs, right? And so as scholars, we we've kind of aim to challenge that and and I guess in a way think of that conversation between between those two camps is a little bit more fluid. So, you know, part of this article, part of our claim is that that history is critical, that one cannot analyze the past and its implications for the present without some form of criticality, that um, that you can't analyze the, 
that, that you can analyze the past without being aware that one is examining power dynamics, but you cannot engage in historical inquiry without addressing power dynamics, right? So that historical thinking encourages one to be critical about what one reads, the purpose of what is written and, and who benefits, right? So there's this, it's, we're not saying that at all moments, what someone claims is history, it's going to be critical, but that it, that history should be critical because of these overlapping commitments. It's interesting because when you say historical inquiry is, is critical, it makes a lot of sense if you actually read historical perspectives, right? Like if you read from different historical perspectives, ones that challenge like white supremacy in their own day, right? Because those perspectives, it's not like you have to go, you know, generating these narratives. They exist in history. And Michael, tell me if you've heard this before. Sorry, one of my uh, historical obsessions is, is Frederick Douglass. It's been a while since we haven't mentioned, I haven't mentioned Frederick Douglass in at least 30 episodes. So I think we're due. But I always appreciated when I would look at his speeches or historical documents about him, he was always reframing dominant narratives in his own time period, right? Like even during the Civil War, he was reframing it as the slaveholders rebellion, right? He was putting the responsibility with white Southern slaveholders as being the reason for what was happening, as, 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 as centering the problems with them. And so it doesn't require like teachers to do any work except to read critical perspectives from the time period. Does that encapsulate, does that, is that included in some of this idea that history, historical inquiry is already critical? So uh, as my high school students would say, yes, but no, <laughs> right? The, the, to some extent, right? Yes. I, I mean, I think what you accurately captured is how historical inquiry really encourages students to develop critical skills, critical thinking skills, right? And to question the narrative. And, and so here we, Tadashi and I try to kind of walk a fine line because for as much as we say history is already critical and that it shares a lot, that, that the disciplinary approach to historical thinking and critical historical thinking share a lot in common. They're still a little different. They share certain commitments to criticality. And that's kind of exactly what you just described. But I, what we want to make sure that we're very explicit about is that historical inquiry cannot be unbiased. It can help students analyze the past. It's a very useful tool to encourage them to think critically about its impact on the present. And this scholarship is very much aligned with the broader movement around critical thinking. But does this work explicitly encourage students to be critical of power? That's the question we need, we're encouraging teachers and, and, and scholars to consider. Perhaps some historical thinking scholars might not see their work in that way, but their research does inherently work in service of asking critical questions about power. The question is, are we actually using it in that way? So, so for, for example, you know, you, you can't jump from state, state sanction to history approach to, so, to social justice, right? There needs to be specific skills necessary to help students along that way to question systems of power and oppression, right? So this is where historical thinking is a very useful skill and, and where we see some alignment with critical thinking, but they're not necessarily perfectly aligned, right? It, and part of it is that you can ask a question about a source without thinking about the implications of power dynamics. Another piece of this is going back to what you both were speaking about in, in the kind of introduction um, for this episode. And, and part of what we're, we're also trying to talk about is 
you know, with this idea that you can't have historical inquiry that is unbiased is to acknowledge that even when there's a sense that that one is doing objective, apolitical historical inquiry, that there's there's a, a still a, a politics embedded in that, right? When the state standards present themselves as being the sort of objective universal narrative, there's a politics behind that, right? So, I mean, I, I appreciate what Michael had been bringing up about, you know, kind of like you, you just kind of tell them everything that you think, like, you know, part of that's about being explicit about where you're coming from, right? To to own up to whatever's going behind on behind one's thinking and one's approach to teaching, so that that there is always going to be that political investment, and, and part of that criticality is is owning up to those political investments that are behind any approach to historical inquiry. So, is this similar to the notion of a positionality, right? That the idea that we have to identify our relationship, our position in the world, based on identity markers in relation, oftentimes to power, right? That exists, and so when teachers admit where they're thinking from, it, it allows them to show that they're, everything's biased here, including them, the historical scholarship, the process of going about doing historical inquiry. I'm putting my quote, my finger quotes up as I do that. Is that, is that a little bit, is it similar to the ways researchers try to, when they do positionality well, is it similar in that sense? Yeah. I mean, and I, I would say, you know, it's that kind of idea of, you know, we can reach a, a better objectivity by owning up to our own subjectivity, right? It's like, instead of pretending like we can be objective, it's about owning up to what is shaping our particular perspective and analysis. And that. So how does this change what history can look like in classrooms? When we, when we see this, history is critical when we're able to kind of, it, when, when it goes right, when people, not, not that they have all the answers, but when they are taking up this practice where they're able to see historical inquiry as a way to, to, you know, to mesh with criticality, what does that look like in a classroom? Um, well, we, I want to start by, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. We don't have all the answers, right? And, but we are part of a large group of people. I wouldn't say a large group, but a, a, a group of people. There's a group of us now, right? Who are really trying to, be thoughtful about what does that look like in the classroom. You know, LeGarrette King has this Black historical consciousness framework that encourages complex and nuanced understandings of Black experiences that go beyond treating Black historical actors as objects. Chris Busey talks about Afro-Latinidad Afro and the importance of exploring anti-Blackness, not just in and how Latinx communities frame Latinidad, but also in how we in the United States conceptualize who gets to be Latinx. Meredith McCoy talks about the role of indigeneity and gender and how, you know, we, although we're trying to push more inclusion of, of women in the curriculum around, you know, these first women books or first women lesson plans that in doing so, we kind of ignore the indigenous women who have held leadership positions in, in their nations. And I think all what, one of the things that all of these have in common is that they all come from historically marginalized groups. That in going back to that question about positionality, it is because of our, our positions, uh, of our, our, our racialized experiences that we're allowed to have these complex understandings about race and ethnicity. And so 
when we think about what researchers should be doing, then it means that we as researchers should be making space for this work, but also seeking it out. I think it's, it goes back to that dichotomy that we were talking about. When we frame these works as being too political or not being, or being biased, then, and, and relying on what we think are like unbiased historical thinking work, we then exclude these very important voices that really are asking us to consider, reconsider completely what is history and how do we teach history. So one of the things that we're trying to do in this piece is, you know, so both thinking about like what what this might look like in the classroom, but but one move that we're also doing is looking at, okay, what are education researchers saying should be happening in the classroom and, and how can we turn that on ourselves as a field a little bit? So Linus and colleagues talk about this idea of, of self-reflexivity for teachers to engage in, in self-reflection about their own role within power dynamics and in uh, historical inquiry, right? And and so we're, we're trying to kind of take that move and expand this idea onto uh, scholars, right? So how can education researchers have that self-reflexivity about one's own role within these matrices of power, right? So, I mean, one question that that comes out of this work applies both to teachers and researchers, which is like, uh, which types of knowledge do you privilege and why? How, how are you engaging with historically marginalized populations in critical ways that address systemic power differentials? So with, with that question, right? So that is really a challenge around being explicit about and, and really being able to interrogate one's positionality around, and you know, in what ways are you addressing systemic power differentials, not just talking about it, but, but being accountable to that. So one can have race representation, but still not engage full accountability with regards to power. So I did want to say, like, when we talk about which types of knowledge do you privilege and why? You know, for teachers, we think about, okay, like which primary sources are you using, right? But also making sure it's not enough to include the perspective of an Asian American person. Why are you choosing that perspective? What does that primary document do that an other document might not be able to do, right? And then kind of the same way that we're calling on scholars to cite the work of other scholars who engage in this work, like some of the people that we already mentioned, because they bring a perspective that other scholars don't. And so we need to be mindful of being reflective of why are we choosing certain knowledges over others. It reminds me a little bit of episode 93 we had on Eric Armstrong Dunbar, who wrote a book called Never Caught that has an adult version and then a young adult version. And then a, I think even a there's picture book. And it talked about the life of Ona Judge. And even the historical scholarship in that was a challenge because she wrote at the beginning of the book how oftentimes Ona Judge's life wasn't written about and wasn't featured in curriculum because of the anti-literacy laws that existed in her own lifetime, right? So the historical scholarship is missing even primary documents from Ona Judge that could have existed if you did not have oppression in the time. So the very act of like of writing a book from her perspective required kind of even a different type of historical work because it considered the time period. And I don't know if that's a different type of knowledge, but it's a different way of having to approach history that took account both in the present and the past for historical imbalance and power structures. Exactly. I ask my pre-service teachers when they have a hard time finding 
primary sources of someone. I'm like, well, you also need to ask yourself, why are they not, why didn't they exist, right? Only certain documents get to be in the Library of Congress, right? Only those that someone has deemed with historical significance to be included in archives, but we all have some sort of primary sources in our own homes of that are family history that are representative of our, of our communities, right? And some of those primary sources are documents and some of those are oral history. Some of those are photos, right? These are all different types of sources that sometimes aren't considered valuable enough. And so it's really important to also ask, why are they not being preserved? Why are certain sources more accessible? Because that gets to this issue of, of power dynamics, right? It's just not enough to say, oh, well, they just don't exist. That goes back to the part that we we're talking about earlier of multiple perspectives. Well, I'll include certain perspectives because those are the ones that are available to me. But really, we should be having this conversation of why we should center other perspectives. Yeah, and, and I think in that sense, it's holding oneself accountable for those absences and silences of knowledge, right? Like the absence of certain citations. It's it's not as simple as the documents aren't there or that the sources aren't there, but why? How did that come to be, right? And allowing that to be a part of the inquiry that's happening, right? And both in terms of classroom teachers, but also as researchers, like why are, are there certain silences and, and absences of, of whose voice, whose research is being represented? You've made a very good case that there is a false dichotomy between historical inquiry and criticality. <laughs> I think so too. I'm a classroom teacher. And I would like to bring these source or would like to bring more sources to class. How do you recommend, how do you do that if it's so difficult to find? Is it, is it reaching out to like people in different communities? Is that what you're recommending that classroom teachers can do? Or is it just being a better researcher? I think it's about having the conversations about why it is difficult to find sources on certain things to ask the questions about why I, I want to know about this community or this population or this piece of history but like I as a teacher I can't find the sources like why is that right and being able to ask that with students and to look into why you know, why is it that we have better access to certain historical records than others? What goes into that process of, you know, preservation of evidence and, and archives and what goes into an archive and how things are made accessible, right? What things are, are digitally available versus not. I mean, so I think that there's a, a piece of that that's also just kind of having that, those silences be a piece of the inquiry. So I appreciate the question, Michael, because it's such a, it's a classic teacher question, right? When I was a teacher, you know, you go to professional development. I'm like, all right, like, how do I teach this in my classroom tomorrow? But I'm really frustrated because I can't find this. And our answer is so frustrating from a teacher perspective because we're not giving you any of the sources. Because <laughs> what we're actually asking you to, asking educators and scholars to do is to step away from the conversation around content for a while and the how, and engage in a, and engage in a conversation about the why with your students, right? which is more of a lens, a theoretical approach to how you teach. So with Tadashi's with Tadashi example and, and Michael, your question, right? The, the teacher, the answer that the teacher wants is here are these five links, find all those, you get to find all those sources, go at it, right? But what we're saying is that the system 
historical, historical education scholarship, history scholarship has marginalized the knowledge of Black, Latinx, Asian American, Indigenous communities, LGBTQI communities, right? Muslims has marginalized not only what they would call historical sources and historical narratives and historical approaches to the point that we, when we see history through this white European-centric lens, think that they don't exist, right? So that's what we want to get teachers and scholars to wrestle with so they could have their students wrestle with the question. And then it's not about why of like, did I include enough people of color, right? Am I being, am I including intersectional perspectives? But having those light bulbs go off in, t- in students, in, off, you know, students' brains about like, oh, this is what uh, Mr. Milton was talking about, why this perspective might not be included, right? And so I, I <laughs> part of me is like simultaneously frustrated by my own answer and 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 proud of it because I think it, it it's trying to get us to think differently about history and that's really hard to do um but incredibly frustrating when we want to be able to go in there and do our best tomorrow and not have the sources in our hands to be able to engage our students with I think I like because that, that gets the power dynamics that you're that you're talking about that's brilliant what an answer the power. So this is where we keep talking about the the, the power dynamics in, in the paper, right? Because it is so much more about whose stories get to be included. And if we take a step back and take this view of the field in its entirety, it allows us to have this conversation. Thinking a little bit more meta, I guess, is what we're saying. I I wanted to add in also the within the idea of, of inquiry is this idea of you know, what do we do when we don't know things and, and how do we, how, how to go about not knowing things, right? And so, you know, to some extent, like within, within historical thinking kind of mindset, you know, part of that is, is that we can't know everything about the past and that's okay. And so with the kind of more, within the more kind of like social justice oriented or, or criticality kind of camp, right? There's also this notion that, that we cannot recover all voices of the past. And that's just, how it is, right? And and so not to pretend that we can recover all those voices, but that that's that's a part of that that's understanding history as it can't be apolitical, right? That there's a politics built into how history functions and, and how it's been made as a field, right? I kind of see like this development of the field of history ad where you know maybe like four decades ago. It was all about rote memorization effects, right? And in many schools, that's still the case. But it, you know, if but in many school districts, that's not the case. And there's there was this push towards historical thinking. And when historical thinking kind of arrives on this on the scholarly scene, and it's introduced to teachers as kind of like, oh wow, like I can't believe we hadn't thought about this in classroom, right? And it feels very odd at the beginning. I mean, that's why Sam calls it unnatural, right? And so, and now what me and Tadashi are, are, are kind of get us to grow with that concept, that, that historical inquiry, yes, we should be asking all of those questions, but we should also be rethinking what counts as historical inquiry and how historical inquiry should be and can be 
and has been used to engage in issues of power dynamics to create more just societies. I hope people who read the article see it as kind of nice nudge to the field to have a real conversation uh, from a place of caring. Like we're not trying to call people out on it. We're not trying to pick fights. We, we sincerely think that there's potential here and that we should be engaging in these conversations together um, to really have a more nuanced approach to history that's more inclusive. Maribel Santiago and Tadashi Dizano, thank you so much for joining us today. tonight. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you both for having us. And I, I do want to mention that the TRSC article is open access. So any teacher can access for free. Download it as many times as you want. So that I'm is literally one- accessing it right now. And that is one place people can access your work. Is there anywhere else online that you want to share that people can find not only this article, but maybe other things that you're up to? Well, there's my website with the University of Washington, where you could read a little bit more about my background and select publications. Of course, you can find me on Google Scholar. I'm also on Twitter. And I haven't tweeted probably in about a year, but my guess is that I'll be... (laughs) I'll end up tweeting more after this podcast. (laughs) You're going to get notifications that we are tagging you and stuff. Tadashi, is there anywhere we can find you online? I I don't have my own website yet, but uh, you can find me on Google Scholar. And and I'm also on on Twitter, but uh, fairly passive on it these days. So I like the I like the world where we're all like give our Twitter accounts, but don't get on Twitter to each other right i think that's a i think that's actually a far better way to use twitter is to yeah i have an account but i don't really use it so thank you so much i'm on twitter too much but i aspire to be more like the two of you and not be on it so much but thank you for joining us in person today we certainly hope to continue the discussion online maybe other people who are spending their time on twitter will be tweeting about this now at the vision of education podcast we're all about sharing the learning if you're doing something fun or creative in education or you just want to chat and we can talk about stuff. We can talk about sources we're not finding and why we're not finding it. We just said Visions of Ed. And we're also apparently in other places too. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And the place we want you to be the most is wherever you can put in a five-star review that helps people find this podcast. We would also like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. Thanks, you Zach. Find, you can find me where I tweet too much on Twitter at Dan Kretka. And I don't tweet that much at all at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.